women in the Hadith. We're going to look at what the Hadith says about women. What is the Hadith? Hadith is a word that has to do with tradition or things that people said or did. But particularly in this case, it's what Muhammad has done. The Prophet Muhammad, his example is the example that Muslim friends are going to follow. It's often called Sunnah al-Nabi, the example of the Prophet. The idea is also stated in the Quran as such. In Surah 61.4 it says, Muhammad was an exalted standard of character. So the person you would want to copy would be Muhammad. It, on Surah 33, it said the apostle of Allah had an excellent example of conduct for anyone who hopes in Allah and for the final day. Thus, the things he said, the things he did or did not do, will then set the example or the pattern of which he approved or disapproved, and they become the source of authority alongside the Quran. Often people say to you, the Quran says you should do this or do that, but actually they're often quoting the Hadith and not the Quran. There is a strong link seen in the formation of the Sharia law also. The example of the Prophet, some of the things are about his lifestyle and the everyday lifestyle of people. Muhammad ate with his right hand, so eating with your left hand is wrong. It must be your right. After the meal, he washed his mouth, so you should wash your mouth after you eat. Eat only halal meat, so you should eat halal meat. Drinks that make you drunken are forbidden. It is also forbidden for a woman to ask friends to her home without asking her husband. And the whole body should always be given a bath on Friday. So these are some of the lifestyles and everyday features that would feature in the life of your friends. Also, you must put the head of the bed facing Mecca. It would be rather serious if a person died not facing Mecca while he was asleep. So it affects the things you do every day, eating, sleeping, cooking, the food, and bathing. Also, it particularly does seem to affect women not that men don't do these things, but it is the woman who has sets the house, arranged the furniture, it is the woman who will be cooking, the woman who will teach the children how to eat. She is the one that sort of sets in place the examples of how the, these behavior patterns are kept. And it's quite a popular tradition that when you're married, you're given a little book, co collection of all these little hadiths, to tell you how to set up your housekeeping within the right rules. The collections known as the Hadith were collected after a period of time. So they were collected from the behavior patterns of Muhammad. But you find as you read them, it wasn't just Muhammad. It was the friends of Muhammad, his companions or his friends, what they did. And then there's a third layer the friends of the friends, and even sometimes spoken of as a fourth layer, the friends of the friends of the friends. So you have these different layers of the early people who were following Islam, who were examples of Muhammad, to be followed. You see this in that the Hadith is given to us in a format of 
the witnesses, the chain of people who saw what Muhammad did. And it's called the Isnad or chain. So then after you have the chain of the people and the names of who saw Muhammad do these things, then you have the statement about what he said or did. So it comes in two parts. First of all, the chain. So it would be something like this, um, that Omar was with Ali, who was with Muhammad on such a day when he was buying sheep and Muhammad bought sheep in this fashion. Or Ali was with Omar, who was with Abu Bakr, and saw Muhammad say such and such to a certain person in a situation concerning a certain matter. And so you have the witnesses to, and they should always go all the way back to Muhammad. And between each witness, there should not really be a break in the chain. Although sometimes some of these traditions are not always of the same fashion. So they are classified, which is very interesting. They're classified as very good, strong, sahir. And then they're classified as good. And then they're classified as weak. Well, ones that are strong are ones that would have many witnesses clearly all the way back to the prophet be repeated on a number of occasions and different collections of witness to the same one. So that would verify that it was true. Then there would be some that are good where there could be some doubt about the witness or doubt about the message, possibly. Then there are those who are weak where maybe there's only one reference to them and we don't have other verifications. But all the that weak ones are also collected as well as some of those which are very strong. And they're masses of collections. Uh, Al-Bukhari tells us that there was like 800,000 of these, and he collected them down to a smaller number, but still he wrote about six or seven volumes of hadith. And each of the collections are very massive. So the number of traditions is enormous. Of course, some of them are very popular and everyone knows them. There's the collection of Abu Dawud called the 40 most important traditions. And most people know those in a small booklet. They're the very popular ones that concern everyday life. And some of them don't just concern life. There are a number of them that are a little bit arbitrary or against women. One of the hadith says that an evil omen is three things a horse, a woman, and a house. These things cause trouble. Things that annul your prayers. If a prayer could be annulled, if when you go to pray and you're bowing, a dog walks in front of you or a donkey or a woman. So that's why some of our women friends said they're on the level of a dog or a donkey because the Hadith gives that impression. But one that's even a bit more serious is that Muhammad said on one occasion, the dwellers of hellfire are women because they're ungrateful to their husbands. And when he looked and saw hell, he saw a large number of women who went to hell because they are deficient in their faith, in their practices, in their intelligence, and because of her unclean times that she is more deficient in religion than a man. So these are rather derogatory hadiths, which quite popularly are often quoted to women. So the hadith is quite an enormous collection of things, and there are many collections. But it's interesting that the hadith, 
were collected in the ninth century. If we look at the life of Muhammad, he died in 632, but the collections that we have of the Hadith are in 870 or 875, 200 years after the death of the Prophet. We have a collection of all the things the Prophet did and said. So his biography and his collections of his life would not necessarily fit a very good historical collection of being near to the time of his death or in the lifespan of people who lived and knew him. They come over 200 years later. And quite a number of the people who collected things were Persians and not Arabs, which is also interesting because Muhammad lived in Mecca and some of the men who collected the traditions and the Hadiths were not citizens of Mecca or Medina. Again, there's a separation between the collections of the people who are Sunni and the people who are Shiite. The Shiite collection, instead of following the traditions of Muhammad, basically tends to follow the traditions of Ali rather than Muhammad. So you will have the traditions of what Ali said and did and his family, his two sons and his wife Fatima. But especially in the modern times, we now have collections of all the things that Khomeini said. So Ayatollah Khomeini has also a collection that is popular in Iran today. Sometimes what the Quran does, it gives statements about what to do, but exactly how you do it is not clear in the Quran. The Quran talks about praying, and it's quite clear that there are two or three specific prayer times. But the story of how you pray five times and the directions about washing and bowing are in the Hadith. We wouldn't know how to do the prayers if we didn't have the Hadith. And the story of how when Muhammad went to heaven on the night journey, originally God asked them to have his people pray 50 times. But on the way coming down from the upper heaven to lower heaven, Moses suggested that this was impossible. He must ask God for a lesser amount of time. And the story of how the prayers came to be five times and the directions about it are in the Hadith. So the Hadith, in a sense, it acts as a commentary or an explanation of the Quran at certain times on certain subjects, giving background and history sometimes. But Bukhari's titles of his collection give us a little more insight into what the books of Hadith are about. He divided his summaries into the book of faith and the book of knowledge, the book of washings, religious washings, the book of the body washings for like taking baths, and the book of uncleanness and the book of prayers. So you can see how the book of washings will affect women uh, and men, of course, but washing for prayer. And the book of uncleanness, when women can't pray or go to the mosque because of uncleanness, and a special wash that is necessary to make you clean. And the book of all the body washings and the baths and bathing the children and all the things that have to be done in the home. So very often, these are particular books that women will know all about and how you wash I experienced that a little bit living with Farida. Uh, there were lots of children in the family, plus one of the granddaughters lived with them, and she was quite small, about four or five months old when I lived there. And I used to help dress the baby. And one morning I was dressing the baby, and when a little child is 
that small. Their arms and legs were swinging and kicking, and she was very active. And I put on her arms into her top, and an arm, but I actually had no idea which arm I put in. I just got an arm and put over her head and put one of her arms in and her other arm in. And her mother was watching me. She was horrified. I put the left arm in first and not the right one. We had to take the baby's clothes off, and she said some special words over the baby. Then I had to start over dressing the baby properly, the right arm and the left arm, and so forth, all the little things that mattered to the mom, but also being unclean and not being able to pray was a very important tradition that often affects people. My friend Nadira was very upset one day, and she was wanting to pray. She had triplets, so she didn't have one baby. She had three babies and a small two-year-old toddler. And when you have children like that, things would make you unclean if they have dirty nappies or if they're sick or if they've been nursing and you have milk on your clothes. You must be clean. You must be washed. You must have no dirty places on the floor where you want to pray. And Nadira has always saying, this is impossible. I won't be able to pray until I get well to be 40 or more years old. Uh, my children will always be making messes. I'll always be unclean. Something will always mean that I can't come to God. And one day she decided, they're all in bed. They're all asleep. Now I'll just quickly take a shower, put on all my clean clothes, and then I will be able to talk to God. I will be clean. And she took her shower, dressed in her lovely clean clothes, and she put the prayer mat down on a clean place on the floor and was just about to start when one of her children was sick and spit in her direction all over the clean floor and onto her, and everything was unclean. She said, Oh God, if you want me to talk to you, how can I? I'm always unclean and I can't come, but I do want to come. And for some of us, this might seem very strange, but also it is somewhat knowable for some of our Jewish friends in the Old Testament. People were unclean. They were unclean when they had diseases and weren't acceptable to come to the temple. And think about that woman who came when she had an issue of blood. She would not have been able to go to the temple, and it was many years. Have you ever thought that you're unclean? You can't go to church. You can't take communion. You shouldn't be able to touch the Bible. All these things that would keep you. Most of us have grown up not ever thinking of the physical or uncleanness in that kind of sense. But it is very real to many people in these other cultures that they are unclean. And so she couldn't come. And that afternoon when I arrived at Nadira's house, she was weeping and saying, you see, I can't come to God, but you're clean. You come to God and pray for me. And, we, and I told her the story of the woman and how Jesus cleansed her and she could be clean. But I also talked with her about cleanliness. Yes, God does consider perhaps that we should care for our bodies and that cleanliness is not unimportant. But the Bible talks to us most of the time about the cleanliness of our heart and our life. How can we wash our life? How can we wash our heart and the things that are invisible that make us unclean toward God? And I shared a lot of things with her and prayed with her. And she was very 
quieted and said, that's wonderful that God accepts us. It's wonderful that you could have that God. But she wasn't sure that he applied to her. But I've talked to her many times about how we have, God does want us to be clean and come to God, but it's a picture of our hearts and our sinfulness, not a picture of our clothes and our physical bodies. And so these stories, there are many of them that you can share with your women friends to whom these things are very real. But Hadith matters to them, and they're very concerned about keeping the rules and about being able to do the things that they think that God would want them to do. But I think it's interesting, too, that but when they accept and come to Christ, often I have had people say, what do you have to do? How does a Christian sleep? How does a Christian eat? Does it matter what you do? Are we ever unclean as a Christian? Are there things that we can't do, but sometimes we can do? Um, and I think as Westerners, we often are saying, ah, there's no rules, there's no law, we're free. We can live and choose for ourselves. But is that really just so like that? And what does it mean to be free? And I think as we look at many times in the scripture, it's relational. How do we choose what to do? I think it's in relation to Jesus. The things we choose to do, are they helping us to become more like Jesus or are they hindering us? It isn't a matter of judging the thing perhaps as right or wrong, but how it affects our relationship to Jesus and to the things that he wants us to do. But also the second part is how it affects our relationship to other Christians and our family and those who are in the church with us. So that the choice is not choosing just the thing, but our choice is relational to the Lord and to others. And also we have promises that God, through the Holy Spirit, will lead and guide us. He will direct our path. So I think it's, we have to think about helping our Christian friends and believers understand how we choose. And there was a book that was written many years ago that gives lots of examples. And I found sometimes it's helpful for us to just look at it. There's a little book called Walking in the Steps of Jesus. Or I think even that poem that was popular a few years ago, the, his prince in the sands of time, that we walk today where Jesus walked. And we would think of choosing things to do, not whether it's a law or a commandment, but our relationship to Jesus and how we would choose. And I'm sure you'll hear questions like that from your friends. I hear many times when we're talking about doing something. Why do you live like this? How do you know you're supposed to use your money this way? How do you know whether you can eat so everything? How do you know how to set the table or put the beds in the house? How do you know how to wash? Does it matter if the water's running or the water is sitting in a bowl? All these things because of the ways and traditions they had before, they will be conscious of wanting to make the right decisions as a Christian and walk in the new ways. And for those of us who are not used to having traditions or having a pattern, maybe we have to have a few thoughts about how our life is patterned. And not that it is a tradition, but it is a pattern that might give meaning to our life or meaning to the object that we're doing rather than just doing something because other people did it. So I think that 
the Hadith, though it may seem an overwhelming number of things and a massive subject to our Muslim friends, yet I think it opens many doors to talk about many practical issues that give you opportunities to talk about Christ and the Word of God with our friends.